film listeners, I'm Josh Wall, and frankly, I love movies. Welcome to my podcast where I dissect films with fellow film enthusiasts and figure out why we love the medium so much. Today I have another diary entry in my film watching journey. I'm going to take you through all of the movies that I watched from December 1st all the way through December 14th. Unfortunately, that means I will not have Avatar The Way of Water on this list because this is coming out the earliest point that I can see the film, so it's going to have to wait until the next diary entry. But before we get into any of the films that I have seen, uh, I'd like to just, you know, as always, say if you like the show, please make sure to like, comment, subscribe, and leave a rating on your favorite podcasting platform of choice. You can also follow the show on social media, Frankly I Love Movies, on Instagram and Facebook, and you can follow me on Letterboxd at BigWalls21 for all recent movie reviews. Also, I wanted to clear something up. Last week on the show, I mentioned that the next standalone episode is going to be on the social network. Unfortunately, that episode has been pushed back. It's calling for me to do a lot more editing than I was originally anticipating. So uh, I want to make sure that is in as good a shape as it possibly can be before I send it out to you guys. So I will have a, uh, a different standalone episode up next week. It is going to be on Blood Simple with my friend and creative partner, Kevin Shaheen. It's going to be a really great conversation. Look forward to that Tuesday, December 20th. But enough gab. Let's get right into the diary entry. Starting off on December 2nd, I settled in for a rewatch and I uh, wanted something, uh, again, that I had it, had seen but hadn't seen in a very long time. I like going back and reevaluating uh, movies as I talked about here on the show a lot. So I went with Looper from 2012, written and directed by Ryan Johnson, stars Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Bruce Willis playing each other. Joseph Gordon-Levitt uh, is uh, playing someone in the uh, not-too-distant future who is called a looper, is basically like a hitman to take out um, people who need to be killed in the future. They are sent back to the past and he kills them for money. Uh, until his future self, played by Bruce Willis, meets up with him and a chase ensues. I remember seeing this in theaters and really liking it. I remember being very um, affected by the violence of the film and how um, energetic everything was and how um, the drama felt good. And I hadn't seen it since I got it on Blu-ray back in, you know, 2012 or 2013 or whatever that was. Um, and, you know, with everyone uh, seeing Glass Onion and, you know, reevaluating all the Knives Out stuff with Ryan Johnson, I figured this would be a good time to revisit because I definitely want to rewatch Knives Out before I'm able to see Glass Onion. So uh, I figured, let's go with Looper. And I had fun with this. I, I still think it's pretty good. It's not as good as when I, you know, I, I, I first saw it. I remember, like, really loving it. But this was a good rewatch. The biggest thing that I could take away from it is that Ryan Johnson's, you know, uh, energetic style of storytelling is very palpable and it makes his stories, you know, very fun. Um, that's why there's such great journeys. Like he clearly is a very passionate storyteller and is someone who loves like deconstructing what makes a, an interesting narrative and an engaging um, film. And he does it, you know, with in very technically savvy ways with also incredibly interesting characters. He is incredibly gifted. There's no there's no doubt about that. With time travel, you know, I, I think that I'm more likely and able to give myself over to the film and be like, okay, this is how this movie is explaining time travel and this is how they're expecting you to perceive it as because that's the reality of this world. So with any, you know, film like that, 
there's going to be some inconsistencies and there's going to be some, you know, head scratching as to the mechanics of it all, because it is obviously it's an incredibly difficult task to pull off a movie with, you know, well utilized, you know, science around time travel. So I never really go into, you know, the movie expecting perfection um, on, on that front. But there's definitely some storytelling elements of like the exposition being placed in strange moments. There's uh, this really strange shot halfway through. There's this cool montage where they're taking Joseph Gordon-Levitt like through the years, essentially catching him up with Bruce Willis's character. And it's an interesting montage, a fun sequence, and it's uh, it's well told. But there's this, this shot of Bruce Willis with Joseph Gordon-Levitt's like long hair but it's kind of falling out in patches oh my god he looks like such a goofball it's so funny and it's supposed to be this transition moment between the two characters or the two actors and the same character and it's just so fucking funny there's also just like some you know character slash writing flourishes that don't necessarily need to be there like Joseph Gordon-Levitt has this waitress that he is kind of flirts with when he's like speaking French to her. And there's also this love interest character who's uh, I can't remember who the actress is, but her character is uh, is a stripper. And that doesn't really come into play at all very much, you know, other than like a little bit of, you know, sympathy for some stakes at one part of the movie. It takes a while, I think, probably just because it affects the pacing, I would say that it's it doesn't need to be two hours. I think they could have shaved like 15 minutes off of it. And a lot of it has to do with the first act, you know, being a little clunky in terms of what they have to set up and get you on the side um, of the characters, but also balancing to make them uh, somewhat empathetic. Um, I understand that's tricky. And Ryan Johnson is obviously having a great time doing it, but it doesn't always work uh, in that sense. So I don't think this is Johnson's best film. I definitely think uh, Knives Out is better, though I haven't seen um, I haven't seen some of his earlier films like Brick, which I uh, would love to. Um, but I still had a good time. It was fun to you know again reevaluate it and see what what engaging moments reminded me of. Uh, like it reminded me of loving it as a teenager. Um, and yeah, it's a good sci-fi neo-noir film. So if you haven't seen it in a while, it's on Hulu. Um, I gave it three and a half stars. Didn't give it the like, but I still enjoyed myself. All right, here's a big one. Two days later, I uh, finally got to check off a David Lynch film that I have been searching for um, for about 10 years now. In my, uh, in my town of Binghamton, there's, a, uh, there's Binghamton University, and they have a film program there, the, the cinema program, and they do screenings throughout the year. They're just open screenings that you can um, go to, but they're uh, you know, for like the cinema department, and if you're like a student, you can get in for free, um, but the tickets are obviously extremely cheap. And I saw that they were showing Inland Empire, David Lynch's most recent film that he made uh, in 2006, and I had been hearing about this movie ever since I really first got into Lynch when I was in high school. And I had never really gotten to see it because it's kind of hard to find. And the DVD copies are, you know, uh, pretty scarce. And the Blu-rays are even scarcer. So I was just like, when am I ever going to get to see this? And then earlier this year, uh, Janice Films remastered it to the 4K and uh, put it out for a theatrical release. I'm not sure this is, I don't think this is what I saw. I mean, I definitely didn't see it 
on a projection for sure. I think this is just a professor either had his own Blu-ray or his own DVD, and that's what they showed. Um, but maybe I think the reasoning to show it was because interest had sparked up again for the film, uh, which it obviously did because I went to go see it. <laughs> um, but I I was so excited to finally get to see this movie. It's a three-hour movie all about a woman in trouble. Laura Dern plays a um, an actress who uh, gets a part in a film production, and the, her character and herself start to kind of blend together, essentially, is what the movie's about. <laughs> um, I mentioned it's three hours. Uh, the only negative thing I will say about this uh, screening was, uh, and it is, has nothing to do with the movie, it was really just me, um, I showed up late by accident. I hate showing up to things late. Um, I thought it started at eight, but I knew I wanted to get there early. So I, I ended up getting there at like seven thirty five or something like that. And the film started at seven thirty. So I missed the first scene, unfortunately. Uh, and I contemplated not staying because I really wanted to experience it in a full one sitting kind of thing. But it's like, well, it's 10 minutes. So there's two hours and 50 minutes left, to, you know, to more movie to experience. So I, I didn't really think it made sense to to walk out. I was like, nope, let's stick to it. And so I, I only missed the opening scene. And afterwards, I went home and I actually found that scene on uh, on YouTube. And the scene that I uh, had started with was when uh, the uh the older woman, the neighbor is walking to talk to, to talk to Laura Dern. So really I didn't miss, um, really anything. I only missed one scene and I had actually already seen the scene before, um, on, on YouTube. So I was, I, I was, I was okay. Um, one of the most memorable movie experiences I have had in a while. This movie's incredible. I had such an amazing time. Uh, I was shocked at how fast three hours went by. It just like, when it was over, I was like, there's no way that was three hours. And you could definitely feel that it's long, but I was engaged the entire time. And I was just so enveloped in what Lynch was doing and how he was really playing with ideas in a way that he has never done before. And he was, he's was he been very vocal about how you know this film was completely different from other films and that he didn't have a finished script when he started filming he would have ideas that i those ideas would work into a scene and then he would go shoot the scene and then he would find the connective tissue in between them and then you know he spent like 3 years making this movie and then this is what we got in 2006 um filmed entirely on digital um cameras very low budget low quality digital cameras that really um, heightens the terror that is present in this movie. This movie is very scary. It has um, some incredibly disturbing images. I do not know what it all means. I have some theories, but I mean, you can theorize about Lynch all day long and you're never going to get, you're only going to get deeper in the hole. You're not going to get out of it. So, um, <laughs> but I had such a wonderful time watching this movie. It was so engaging and so cool. And, so mysterious you know it was just wonderful to finally understand what the aura around this movie was and to cross it off the list and you know uh say that i've seen it but also not just to say that i've seen it but to also you know have loved it as much as i did and i you know i think if you like lynch then you are going to like this movie it's incredibly well paced it's so fun um it, at least just fun for me again it's very disturbing it has some some of the scariest images I've ever seen in a film. 
but all of it is just in the pure Lynch spirit of exploration and trying to discover something and being able to process what it, how, how that thought or what you're discovering makes you feel. And because of that, it was such an engaging experience. There's a couple really great cameos in the film, which I won't spoil. Um, one of them that happens towards the end of the film, I had actually already already known about. But there was another one a little earlier that I was shocked by, and I had uh, no idea um, that that person was was in the film. And so it was very fun to see them. Uh, I saw this movie. Uh, it was in an lecture hall at the at the at Binghamton University, and most of the uh, other people in the theater were students. And there were several people who walked out during the film. And, uh, you know, that you can't really ask for anything more of a Lynch screening than for people to leave in confusion. The best example of this, though, was there were a couple of girls behind me um, watching it. And I don't know if this was their first Lynch film or whatever, but I could hear them like whispering to each other about how like they were like, oh, what the fuck is going on in this movie? What's happening? But they were also engaged with the movie and that they were trying to put it together like as was happening. And I, I hate when people talk to her in the movies, but it was actually kind of they didn't do it too much. But it was actually kind of fun to hear them try and be like, oh, that's the guy from that scene. Or this is like this means is this in this scene. Or like, And so they were engaged with it. And then towards the end, there's, a, there's an, an incredible jump scare that like made everyone in the theater like freak out and one of them was like nope nope and just got up and left and then her friend was like wait no come on stay and she didn't come back and her friend stayed and the, the at that point there was only like five minutes five ten minutes left in the movie so like you know if this was their first time seeing it they wouldn't have known that but you know still i uh i i just had such a wonderful wonderful time it was one of those times where as soon as it ended i wanted to start it again I just wanted to experience it all over again. It was such a wonderful time. And again, a feeling of um, just waiting to see something, you know, and hearing so much about, you know, this film and what went into it, but still not really know, you know, what the movie is about, like on a very surface level. It was just very exciting to um, to see that. So it was a really wonderful experience. I can't wait to to um, see it again. I'm sure Criterion is going to put out a um, a physical release of it. You know, maybe next year or something. You know, hopefully, since Janice has the uh, um, has the distribution rights, you know, hopefully they can uh, put together a really cool Criterion uh, Blu-ray of it. But we shall see. But for now, I gave this movie four and a half stars. I gave it the like. I cannot wait to see it again. Uh, next up, I went back to uh, 1956 to watch Written on the Wind, which is a quintessential Douglas Sirk melodrama. A lot of people say it's his best. It's his most known film with starring Rock Hudson and Lauren Bacall. Um, and it's a, a wonderful Southern Gothic drama about these four characters, one of whom is Rock Hudson, who is best friends with Robert Stack, who plays Kyle Hadley, who is kind of the the heir to this rich um, Texas like oil tycoon family. Um, and Robert Stack's character falls in love with Lauren Bacall, but Rock Hudson also falls for her. And then um, Robert Stack's sister, who is played by Dorothy Malone, gets caught up in this as well and it's you know pure energetic dialogue uh, tons of emotions again another you know amazing script that Cirque is working off of and it's just wonderful 
you know, Cirque does not disappoint in my view. Uh, I think that while I still like All That Heaven Allows more, this movie is very clearly more devastating than All That Heaven Allows. Is All That Heaven Allows, all of the pain and devastation is a bit more under the surface. This, though, it's like out there in that it's the, the script is so punishing to the characters and what everyone goes through feels so honest but it also feels so like they go through a lot like it's just so painful and the the entire cast so good dorothy malone i mean she won an oscar for this movie and it's absolutely deserved she's such a charismatic performer uh and i love rock hudson so much um lauren bacall is also fantastic and obviously robert sack they just all work so well together um you really believe each of their individual relationships and i mean again you know, when you boil it down to it, this movie is about like a love triangle or a love square in this sense with these four characters. And, you know, that's not everyone's cup of tea for sure. You know, I mean, it's melodrama is very much based in dialogue and heightened emotion. And that cannot be for everybody. And I'll be honest, like the first like 10, 15 minutes of this movie, I wasn't really sure how I was going to feel about it. I was like, OK, where where are we going with this? What's I'm not getting the same feeling of immediate attraction as um all that heaven allows did but as it went on and the drama started to intensify and more information came to light about the characters i was just locked in i really loved this movie um i only have one more cirque films to see of the criterions that i have and that's magnificent obsession which i did not see um in time for this diary entry but i, I will very soon and I, I hope they put more of his films on physical media and criterion like imitation of life i still need to see um but he's slowly becoming even though i've only seen two of his movies he's slowly becoming a new favorite of mine um and i'm I'm so fascinated by melodrama and clearly the influence that he had on people we you know we the most recent standalone episode was all about rainer verner fassbender incredibly influenced by douglas sirk and it's just been really great to kind of go through and see what that guy was interested in uh that guy being Cirque and the influence that he left in a, in a very dry period in Hollywood. A lot of people note that the fifties are one of the worst decades ever for films. And he is definitely a bright spot. He is someone that I'm very attracted to in terms of storytelling. And I, I just want to go through everything he's done. I'm, I'm so fascinated by him. Um, but written on the wind is terrific. I gave it four and a half stars. I gave it the like, I highly recommend seeking it out. Um, if you know, if you want to get into Cirque again, this is probably his most known film, probably the one he had um, that had the most influence on people. Catherine Bigelow has spoken about how much this movie inspired her in some of her earlier films. You can see direct homages to it, and it was it was just really great to watch it. And it's also beautiful. Oh my god, the Technicolor is so wonderful. This is a much cooler movie than All That Heaven Allows. All That Heaven Allows is very autumnal and um, really working in uh, warm colors like oranges and yellows and greens, even though that then they then get into the wintertime. But most of this is cooler it's very blue it's very um homey in a way but also you know very sad um but i i loved it i loved it so much so four and a half stars and i gave it the like i uh, actually did an interesting double feature on this day which i've been doing a lot more recently uh, i don't think there's any similarities between these two films at all but uh i, I wanted something a bit more fun 
Uh, again, another rewatch, and uh, this is a movie that I've been thinking about uh, for a little bit, and uh, I haven't seen it since maybe high school or college. I, I, I can't remember, but I decided to rewatch the original, the OG 1993 Jurassic Park, directed by Steven Spielberg. I don't need to tell you what this movie is about. It's Jurassic Park. It's cemented in pop culture history as one of the most iconic, you know, one of the greatest movies of all time. And uh, after this rewatch, you know, that is not going to change. That's obviously an incredibly valid title that this movie has. It's amazing. It is a five star movie. It's an absolute like it's one of the greats. It's one of Spielberg's you know, crowning achievements. It was never one, though, for me that I attached to early on. Like I first saw this when they re-released it in theaters in 3D in like 2013, I think. You know, so I was like 15 years old when I saw this movie for the first time. I didn't grow up with it. I didn't see it as a kid, even though I loved dinosaurs as a kid. I mean, what kid didn't, right? But even like when I saw it in theaters, I was immediately like, I, it felt so modern. Like it felt like, oh, wow, this movie just came out today. Like it feels like it literally, like I am seeing this on opening night and I am experiencing it for the first time. But it was such a fun experience. It's an incredibly uh, invigorating film that is constantly moving. I mean, it's kind of the Spielberg charm in movies like this to have something happening every single 10 minutes which is one of the the you know unteenth number of reasons why Raiders of the Lost Ark is is the best and Jaws but you know this one was revolutionary obviously for the visual effects you know that the leaps that they took in terms of computer generated imagery with and then there's also all of the the puppetry and the animatronics that look still so real and I think that, you know, th- there were moments like throughout this rewatch, I was watching on HBO Max, which I know they uploaded in um, 4K. Some of the CGI, you know, is noticeable, which doesn't bother me because it just feels like a real movie. It feels like a movie that would wow you, you know, and it doesn't, you know, I can't watch this movie and be like, oh, that, that looks fake. That's, you know, that's not real because like, obviously it isn't. But, like, it still feels impressive, you know, because I can't watch this movie and not think about it in the context of 1993. You know, I can't think about it and be like, why did were people blown away by this? It's just like it's totally understandable. And all of the animatronics still look great because it's a real thing, you know, and all of the actors around them are so talented and know how to communicate the emotion effectively. Sam Neill, Jeff Goldblum, Laura Dern, Richard Attenborough. Wayne Knight like everyone is so great in this movie Samuel Jackson it's just it's one of the best and you know it it's still I I think it just hasn't really aged a day you know and I think that you know this movie in a lot of way you know set up a lot of the franchise filmmaking that we're seeing today and you know it, it was a total game changer this movie was it should have only been one movie and it's but it's spawned it spawned a franchise. Now we have, you know, all the Marvel movies. You know, we recently got a Indiana Jones trailer that I think looks fake as fuck. But this movie still looks revolutionary for the medium. You know, it still looks like I if the, the first time you show it to somebody, you're just like, this is what dinosaurs are meant to look like on screen. This is the closest thing we're going to get to, uh, you know, dinosaurs and humans interacting and making it feel real. Like it sucks you in. It's a two-hour movie that just it doesn't stop, and I love watching it. I'm so glad to revisit it. I've never actually seen The Lost World or Jurassic Park 3, but I've seen all three Jurassic World movies. Um, so I, I may, in the coming weeks or so, watch those other two because I've heard very divisive things about Lost World, and I've heard pretty much everybody 
not like Jurassic Park 3, but a couple of my friends like it. So uh, maybe I'll dive into that. But there's no denying that this one, the first one, is one of the greatest movies ever made and one that will continually affect people and inspire filmmakers and dinosaur lovers for years to come. So it is a is an absolute five-star film. It's definitely a like. On to another rewatch. I decided to give my buddy Tyler Harner a call, uh, and we did like a virtual movie night thing. I've mentioned we've done that before on this show. And we were cruising around streaming services. Nothing was really grabbing our interest, but I had mentioned that on Hulu, um, the happening had been popping up in my recommended for uh, a few days now. And he mentioned that he'd never seen it. And that, you know, sealed the deal for me. I was like, you have to see this movie. Having, you know, known about it and he wasn't going in completely blind, but it was a, a whole new experience for the most part for him, which is a wonderful thing to do. I think this is, um, and I'm no stranger to my feelings in this movie as well. I've mentioned it before. We did a whole, Matt and I did a whole episode of it um, in the early days of this show. So I I can't, I'm not going to add that much to this conversation, you know, around that movie. But like, it's such a wonderful, bad movie. It's so much fun. It's so fucking funny. I really think that the thing about it that makes it so iconic in terms of how it like so bad that it's good is because like this movie just fundamentally does not work. I mean, also if you don't know, you know, this movie is about basically the the planet, like uh, uh, like people are starting to kill themselves, and then Mark Wahlberg and Zoe Deschanel are running for their lives um, in a day. By the way, this whole movie takes place in a day, surprisingly, and so they just must struggle to survive to get out of this basically environmental disaster, um, and. It's it's so stupid. And no matter how much M. Night can say, like, oh, this is supposed to be a B movie. You're supposed to hate it. You know, you're supposed to laugh at it. I do not believe that because everyone in this movie is taking everything so seriously and it's trying to be effective and it's trying to be, you know, um, disturbing. It's it's a thriller. You know, it's trying to get your nerves up. But like. Everything about this movie just doesn't work. It just doesn't click. Everyone is horrible. Every performance is so bad. The story makes no sense. You know, there's so many just laughable moments, you know, like uh, Zoe Deschanel just keeps talking about the tiramisu that she had with Joey, um, which is voiced by M. Night Shyamalan. And, you know, Mark Wahlberg just Marky Mark and all over this fucking movie. It's just, I I can't, it's hard for me to articulate anything new about this movie, but I was just like in awe watching it about how the reason that it's so funny is that the movie is just, it's kind of just kind of broken. Like it just, it doesn't work. It it could have been an interesting idea, but pretty much every choice made just falls flat. (laughs) Um, And that's what makes it, you know, one of the, one of the best bad movies out there and one that is so fun to return to it's been a few years since i've seen i think it's been since our episode back in 2018 since i've seen this movie um so it's it was really great to return to it uh and and to show it to somebody who had never seen it in full and he had a great time we were you know riffing on it the the whole time so much fun so fucking funny so bad so stupid iconic (laughs) all right guillermo del toro's pinocchio this is, um, as the title would suggest, Guillermo del Toro. Um, his adaptation is stop-motion uh, adaptation of the classic 
uh, Disney tale. This is the second Pinocchio movie we're getting in four months or something like that. The Robert Zemeckis one with Tom Hanks came out a few months back. I did not see that. I had no interest in it. It looked terrible. Um, but this one I was very interested in because I do love Del Toro and I am a big fan of stop motion animation. The original Pinocchio is something that I did love as a kid. It's obviously, you know, it gets a lot of points for being incredibly disturbing as it's for a children's movie. But I, um, I do remember having a good time watching it growing up. I don't remember it being one of my favorites, but I remember liking it. You know, it's not up there with like Beauty and the Beast or Aladdin or the Jungle Book or uh, Peter Pan as, uh, or Hercules or anything as ones that really stand out as being favorites of mine growing up. But I do remember watching it quite a bit. And it's, it's a good movie. So I was curious to see where they were going to take this one. And obviously, you know, this one was kind of marketed as being a little bit darker. And so I was I was interested. I was interested to see where they were going, uh, what they were going to do with this. And uh, undeniably, the animation, the stop motion animation is beautiful. Like, it's really wonderful. I, I love the art of stop motion animation. I wish they did more movies, um, you know, like that. Except for some of the parts with water. I think water's like really hard to get to nail down in stop motion. But like other than that, I thought all the character design looked great. The cast was all really good. Um, minus Finn Wolfhart. He's in this movie. He's not very good. Um, but I thought everyone else really gave a very emotionally connected performance. Um, from Christoph Waltz to Kate uh, Blanchett as a spider monkey to Gregory Mann as Pinocchio and Ewan McGregor as uh, Jiminy Cricket or Sebastian J. Cricket, excuse me. And there's a lot of other um, various supporting performers that pop up for a few lines. Obviously, uh, Ron Perlman is also in this as a Del Toro favorite. And uh, Tom Kenny has a moment and Blake Nelson, John Turturro. They all have their moments in the film. It's also co-directed um, by Mark Gustafson. Gustafson? Uh, I'm not familiar with his other work, but I, I guess he works a lot in stop motion. So it's a good pairing with Del Toro, who, uh, you know, loves putting childhood wonderment in terrible situations. And this movie takes place during Mussolini's Italy and the rise of fascism. And there's also this whole added element of Geppetto having a son before Pinocchio. Um, so they, they they take some strides with the with the story. And while I was very um impressed with the animation i thought the storytelling was interesting i'm a little conflicted about it because i think there's this there's this really great 10 minute prologue right at the start i was i was really interested in that and then the hour mark this movie's two hours the the immediately at the hour mark where i was back to being interested because I honestly felt like the first hour of this movie is kind of clunky and doesn't really know what it wants to be. I didn't realize that this was technically a musical because there's like a couple very short musical numbers um, aside from, I mean, if you know the story of Pinocchio, when Pinocchio goes in with the traveling carnival, he's like a, he's an act as being, you know, the, the doll that comes to life and he sings a couple songs. Aside from those, there are actually like, musical numbers that other characters sing in the narrative but only in the first act and i was very confused by that choice because one i don't remember them marketing it as a musical maybe maybe i'm wrong but like i was i was not expecting that going into it and the songs weren't super interesting and it was just very strangely placed and then they just kind of give up on it in the second half so i i thought that was a very strange choice Maybe it also just took me as a as a viewer a bit longer to 
get used to Pinocchio, the character, because obviously, you know, he's he's a bit annoying. Um, so it took me a little bit to get used to him. But it, I didn't think there was a lot of confidence in the first half of the story. Like I was I was a little like, OK, this doesn't feel right. Like I, sh- I felt like I should have been loving it more than I uh, was. And I wasn't really attached to any of the characters um, I, like I said, I thought the voice performances all were good, but I wasn't really interested. And then in the second half, another montage starts of characters traveling and growing apart and passing through time. And that's where the confidence really kicked up in a lot of the del Toroisms of the war being, you know, you know, ramping up and the, where those come into light along with the, you know, childhood innocence and the need for friendship and companionship where I was a lot more interested in the second half. And again, they dropped the musical idea. That the, the musical idea I just don't think really works, and they could have gotten this movie down to probably an hour 40 by taking those three or four songs that they sing in the first half out, along with a couple other things. Um, and I think that that just works completely in the film's favor. I, I don't really understand the musical angle, you know, of why they wanted to do that, but... I was locked in for the second half. All the traveling through Europe and fighting in the war. I was a bit more... They they go into the uh, kind of existential questions of Pinocchio also as a character in terms of like the magic and the life that is, you know, breathing through this character. I thought that was really interesting. Gets a lot of interactions with Tilda Swinton, which is always fun. Um, and also the... Again, the look, the, the design of the production and the animation is obviously all beautiful. So I was a very much more locked into the second half of the movie um, than I was in the in the first half. And, you know, you, I, I love Del Toro. You can really feel his presence throughout. I just wish this was better. You know, I was I was expecting it to be better. I also thought that, like, Jiminy Cricket is presented as the narrator of this movie in the first half. And then he really doesn't do anything for the rest of the movie. They try and give him, you know, an arc of some kind. It doesn't really feel earned or deserved to me or it doesn't really fit. doesn't make sense because the movie is admittedly trying to do a lot. Um, And that character kind of suffers by the wayside and doesn't really do anything. And I'm not, again, I'm not a Pinocchio purist. Doesn't have to be just the character following Pinocchio around, you know, being the conscience. But I'd like him to do something. You know, there's a part at the end where he tries to prove that he's done something and it doesn't really feel earned because I almost forgot that he was a part of this movie. And I love you and McGregor. You can't, can't sell the guy short. But like here, I was just, confused at what this character was supposed to be so there's things i liked things i didn't uh this is another example where i think uh rating this movie similar to like the menu i think this is closer to like a 3.25 but a three kind of felt a little harsh because i did enjoy myself for a fair amount of it you know i i i won't lie it's just that like there's that first half like really like the first like after the prologue there's 50 minutes where i just wasn't fully on board with what the movie was doing and it much like Pinocchio you know it took him a while to really like find his legs and figure out what he can do and then once they did that second half is just way more interesting and way more engaging um and I really liked that so a bit more you know 50 50 on this movie than I actually uh, was expecting to glad I watched it and the uh the Golden Globe nominations came out this week this was nominated for best animated feature 
and Alexander Desplat was nominated. And the, the song that was actually nominated for Best Original Song was actually a pretty good song because it wasn't used in necessarily a musical, like a, uh, a musical theater way. And it's, it, was a, it was a very pretty song. But uh, I, I know a lot of people are enjoying this. I just wish I enjoyed it more. So I gave it three and a half stars. I didn't give it the like. But like I said, it's probably closer to like a 3.25. All right, next up on the list, we have A Woman Under the Influence. This is John Cassavetti's 1974 film, all about his wife, Gina Rollins, and uh, Peter Falk. They play a married couple. When uh, the mother starts to basically have a a nervous breakdown, and you watch that unfold over the course of (laughs) two and a half hours. The reason I watched this is because it is, um, I mentioned Kevin Shaheen. It's one of his favorite movies, and we had just talked about it, and I realized that I had never seen a Cassavetti's film, and I had been wanting to, you know, do a deep dive of him. Uh, for inspiration of my own. I know a lot of uh, filmmakers and directors really love his work and find his work to be very um, influential and inspirational on them. And this was one that I heard uh, a lot of people really love as his like masterpiece or it's like this or the killing of a Chinese bookie that I hear brought up the most. So I was very interested to see what this movie was. And uh, (laughs) this movie is painful, I think is the best way to describe it. And I didn't watch it under the best conditions. I watched the first half during a pretty bad mental health day. It wasn't the best day for me. And I didn't know that this movie is as chaotic and uh, uncomfortable as it is. And so halfway through, I was like, I need to take a break. I, I can't watch this. So I took a break. And then two days later, I finished it. And I was in a much better mental state. But it's still so painful because you're watching this destruction of this family and the the mental state of this uh this woman and its effect on you know her kids her husband her mother like her whole you know everyone that she knows her whole world is completely rocked and it's expertly made you know Cassavetes directs this almost in a documentary way it, it kind of reminded me of uh, Harlan County, USA, which is a, an amazing documentary from the 1970s, all about coal miners in Harlem County, Harlan County, uh, Missouri, I believe, in Missouri. Um, and, you know, Cassavetes has said he wanted to focus more on like smaller gestures and individual character moments. And there's a lot of that in this movie. I mean, the performances are all off the charts. I mean, Gina Rollins this is one of the best performances probably that I've ever seen, like legitimately. It's no wonder she got the Oscar nomination. You know, she's so raw and so, uh, I hate to say the word damage, but you can see her state worsen as the movie goes on and she goes through various stages of mental illness. And, um, yeah, this was originally written to be a play and it, it highlights a lot of, you know, bipolarisms and Cassavetti said, I, I can't put my wife through this for eight nights a week. I'm just going to have it as a film. And I think that works to its favor because it, it does feel like a stage play in a lot of ways. And I, I enjoy movies like that. It, it, it's just, you know, having mental health issues of my own and having family members go through stuff like this. It's it's hard to sit through and it's uh, because it's so punishing. And so I was while I was watching, I wasn't really sure how I was going to rate it because it's such an uncomfortable and um, really painful experience. But like it's it's expertly made, but. I wouldn't be surprised if I never watched this movie again, or at least for a very long time, because I was just so, you know, upset and drained by what happens in this movie. But I mean, it's there's no denying that it's an expertly made film and it's often considered to be one of the greatest 
American movies of the new Hollywood era and uh, very influential to a lot of filmmakers. So I'm not going to uh, you know devalue those opinions. I was just like I was so so uncomfortable watching this movie and I, it just it hurt to get through, but I'm, I'm glad I did. And so I, I, I settled on giving it four stars. I did not give it the like. I'd liken it to something like Martha, um, the Fassbender movie that I reviewed on here a f- few months ago, because it's so, again, so well made, but so hard to watch. So, yeah, moving on. The last film that we're talking about in this diary entry is another Cassavetes movie, and that's Opening Night, his 1977 film all about an actress who witnesses the accidental death of a big fan of hers right outside the theater where she is opening up a play on Broadway. This was a movie that I was very excited to watch because I'm very interested in films that are set in the theater or are very play-like, and I knew I had to save this movie for when I did like a Cassavetes binge because I wanted to be able to give myself over to him fully and experience all of his work, and I definitely will be continuing watching some more of his films. And this one is much more my speed than Woman Under the Influence. And while this one is, I think, still a bit too long, it's two hours and 27 minutes, and it could definitely be shorter, I was so much more engaged with this. It has his signature Cassavetes, you know, intrusive style, and it has a fantastic Gina Rollins performance uh, right at the center of it. But the psychological nature of this like really builds and builds and builds throughout. And I didn't find it necessarily disturbing as I was more intrigued by it. And a lot of people have analyzed this movie as being about acting and the the craft of performance and especially, you know, setting it in the theater. It's 100%, you know, there and very obvious, but I was very interested in the relationships with everybody and how nothing is really solid. Like, Gina Rollins has seemingly, like, relationships with everybody, you know, platonic and romantic, Um, and there's no stability in her life, though she is clearly, like, a very lovable actress. She has so many fans and is very good in the scenes where she's being an actress. But it is also so interesting to see how this play comes together and going through all the trials and tribulations of getting to opening night. It's very hard to make that work, and I've been trying to write a screenplay that is very similar in, you know, about showing the craft of creating a theatrical production, and it's incredibly difficult to do that while also keeping the audience's attention. And I was just incredibly impressed by the way Cassavetes does it with such ease and really letting scenes blossom and you know, the way that the performances build and build and build and adding the psychological element. It's just interesting how he made this movie of that basically flip-flops back and forth between a few specific locations like an apartment, a restaurant, the theater, backstage, the dressing rooms, and still makes each scene feel fresh. It's not a very repetitive movie, even though it could definitely, you know, be a little bit shorter. I was never really bored by it. I just felt the length at points. And I was definitely not as emotionally broken at the end of this as I was at the end of Woman Under the Influence. I felt that this movie was, while also, again, dealing with a lot of empathetic or sympathetic psychological torment that Gina Rollins' character goes through, I found the portrayal of it so much more fascinating because it felt fantastical in a way because it was dealing with acting, but also the female position in this world 
but it's also so visual. You know, there's a lot of things within the scenery and the set and the design that you can really chew on. And there's also some really great, like, visual flares, you know? Like, there's this great scene, like, in towards the beginning where the, like, the poster image of the, of the angel kind of fades in over this opaque uh, visual of the audience. And um, there's some just really great moments of melodrama and it's incredibly effective. I really loved this movie and I, I will absolutely return to it. And so far it's my favorite of the two Cassavetes movies I've watched. I'm very excited to watch more of his movies. Uh, I'll probably watch Killing of a Chinese Bookie next. Um, I know that and Faces and Seconds, I believe, are all on the Criterion channel. But I really want to watch like Husbands, um, and I'm, I'm very curious about, about him as an artist, so I'm very excited to go through the rest of his catalog. So opening night, I gave four and a half stars, and I gave it the like. That's it for the diary entry. Technically, there's one more film. I re-watched Blood Simple, um, but I don't want to add too much to that because uh, the episode on that movie will be coming out this coming Tuesday. Uh, me and Kevin Shaheen had a really great conversation about it. I can't wait for you guys to hear it. Uh, as always, if you like the show, please make sure to like, comment, subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform of choice. You can also follow the show on social media, Frankly I Love Movies, on Instagram and Facebook. And you can follow me on Letterboxd at BigWalls21 for all recent movie reviews. One more time, on this coming Tuesday, I'll have an episode up all about Blood Simple with Kevin Shaheen. And then after that, I will have one more diary entry covering all of the movies that I watched for the rest of December. And then I'm going to take a few weeks off um, from getting content out to you guys because January is going to be one hell of a month. So I'm going to take a few weeks off and then I will, uh, I think the first thing I'll have back is a January diary entry and then uh, we'll start the new series and tune into the Blood Simple episode because I will be announcing there what the next series will be. Uh, it's been an incredibly fun journey to um, get that series prepared, still working on it but it's going to be a lot of fun. I'd also like to thank uh, Rihanna Henson for doing all of the artwork for the show, the standalone episodes, all of the thumbnails for the diary entries are done by me, but uh, no one's going to thank me for those, and they shouldn't. Um, and uh, also to Kanan Harris for doing all of the uh, music for the show. Both of them are just fantastic, and the show wouldn't feel complete without them. And obviously, thank you uh, to you, the listener, for sticking with me and uh, enjoying the content that I put out. Until next time, I'm Josh Wall, and frankly, I love movies. Music